Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're talking about some ideas that our listeners have suggested. But before we get into all that suggestive stuff, what is going on? Well, just as we wrap up all the work on issue 10, the deadline for issue 11 of Blasphemous Tome is lurking just around the corner. Once again, we are absolutely delighted if people send us submissions, whether this is a short article or a bit of fiction of up to 500 words, or an illustration. Now that we're producing stuff in colour, we can take colour illustrations, but black and white works just as well. And in order to make our deadlines ideally, we need them by the end of April. So if you have anything you'd like to send to us, our email address is submissions at blasphemoustomes.com. So, Matt, I understand that you've been running games for Into the Darkness and also playing them, and that you've played some of the scenarios from our fanzine, The Blasphemous Tome. Yeah, indeed. I've been going through a lot of the back issues, pulling up some of the scenarios from there, and solely um, spreading the love. <laughs> I know Tom's been really grabbed by a couple of them, so he's gone on and obviously got the fanzine and then run them as well. I know when I ran Of This Man Shall Know Nothing, he was really grabbed by that, so he then ran that for another group, put them through the horrors of World War II. And then likewise, my uh, run of Adducement, which is in the most recent Tome Issue 10, I ran that, and then again, Tom got that and then uh, ran that for another group. So yeah, it's getting a nice little uh, bit of exposure out there. Nice. Yeah, I must say, I really enjoyed listening to that. I listened to your run-through of of, uh, of This Man Shall Know Nothing. <laughs> it's different when different people run it, right? It always is. And it's interesting hearing what they do with the story, but also, obviously, what the players do as well. But it's also interesting how it's slightly different take on running games <laughs> as well, just you know their approach to GMing. Yeah, and put their own spin on things. Like, I, I couldn't help but uh, get the reference to uh, one of the, uh, kind of an Into the Darkness in gag, as it were. We had their run-through of Mars of Naathotep. One of their players, Josh, had a reoccurring, a bit like Matt Knott in our run-through of various games at the MKRPG Club, mm. had the Dibden family turn up in games. Yeah, Josh had characters all from the Cabrera family that all were pretty much the most unlucky, most... Uh, God, doom-laden magnets that you could think of. Basically, they would just die in horrific ways. <laughs> so when I was reading through of this mention or nothing, and you had, yeah, the pilot of the uh, glider at the beginning has something bad happened to him. You had to mm. make that a Cabrera. So I, I put that in. A, <laughs> and just getting the looks from people when they realised, oh, the shit, that name drops. Just the look on their faces was <laughs> worth, <laughs> worth it for just that. <laughs> nice. And now on to our main topic, listener suggestions. Late last year, we used Discord and Twitter to ask our listeners for topics they'd like us to discuss. There were way more responses than we'd anticipated, and it's taken us a while to compile them all. While the suggestions were excellent, not all of them would fill a full episode. So we thought we'd take the approach of going through them on air, answering those that we can address quickly, and picking out others for longer discussions later. Thank you very much to everyone who responded. Yeah, we had a massive uh, response to this 
again thank you very much to everyone who took the time to give us ideas i mean this will keep us going for some time i think yeah and if anybody has more suggestions by all means you know fire them at us yeah and uh, as matt said some of these are going to be things that you know <laughs> they're going to be things that we don't have much to say about and other things that as we talk about it here we may flag up and decide actually you know what we could do a whole episode on this topic Well, should we kick off with one from Elixo? GMless games. <laughs> I know I've played GMless games with you, Paul, uh, many years back. A few, yeah. like uh, we played Polaris and Universalis. Oh, yeah. Polaris was GMless. I'd forgotten that. Did, did we? No, I don't think we ever played Fiasco together. I've never played Fiasco, no. I kind of want to, but. All right. I've played that a number of times. Some people tell me I'd hate it, <laughs> but I don't know. I imagine you'd hate it because my experience of, of gaming with you, Paul, is you do not get on with GMless games. And I hate most things, so I'd probably hate that as well. Yeah. But it struck me that when I was gaming with you <laughs> back in those days and playing a lot of these indie games, that anything that strayed outside the normal structure of um, traditional role-playing games, you immediately took a dislike to. Especially if it didn't have dice. I mean, that was just unspeakable. Diceless, GMless, anything that involved collaborative world building, anything like that. Yeah. As soon as those things were on the table, you'd sabotage the game from the outset. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd have to have a shower afterwards. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, just dreadful. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Polaris was great. That was a very memorable game, I thought. And I thought oh, right. it was really introduced some really interesting ideas. Universalis, I don't. I mean, I do remember it. It didn't really. It was kind of a generic GMless game, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. The problem I found with Universalis was that the game text wasn't very well explained. I found this with a lot of the indie games that came out at the time, that they'd not obviously been very well edited. And with Universalis, it was one of these games where I read through it like three times and still wasn't quite sure how to play it. And also, <laughs> I remember playing it at the club, and I think Neil figured that the more disadvantages you gave your character, the more powerful they were. But the, the advantages were out of all proportion to the disadvantage. So, you, you know, by making them totally awful characters, they were like superheroes, <laughs> it seemed like. That's the way I remember it anyway. I don't remember that, but I do remember that as part of the collaborative world building in that, you sort of talk about the elements you do and don't want to have in the game. And I remember Neil at some point looking at you, Paul, and saying, no Cthulhu in this. So immediately your character had green-dyed dreadlocks on his chin. Did he? <laughs> well, that wasn't any Cthulhu. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's fine. But yeah, I mean, my experience of Fiasco, which I think is probably the GMless game that most people have played, is that more than any other RPG, they depend so much on who you play with. The first time I tried playing Fiasco, I think it was at a convention, and it was an absolute fucking disaster. Was it a Fiasco? <laughs> yes. yes, it was. But it was that classic thing of everyone sitting there sort of saying, okay, well, what do we do? We've got all these elements that we've randomly decided. 
but we need someone to tell us what to do with them, or at least to, to frame them. And there were some people who were at the table who were looking at these elements and sort of thinking, well, yeah, I don't want to overstep the bounds. I don't want to you know, step outside my lane. And as a result, the whole thing really fell flat. Then the next time I pitched the convention, it was with a bunch of people who were used to GMing, who were very outgoing, mouthy people. And the game really took off. I mean, it caught fire and it was one of the best convention games I played. So I think particularly with things like Fiasco and I mean, certain other GM list games have got more structure and more rules over who directs stuff like Polaris. Mm. But I think you really want to play with people who are perhaps used to GMing, but certainly you know, very confident, very outgoing, very you know, vocal at the table. As soon as you get a passive player in a GM list game, you might as well just not bother. And what about you, Matt? Have you got any experience of GM list games? Yeah, Fiasco is the one that comes to mind. Oh, you've played that, right? Yeah, yeah. I can echo what Scott said, that it lives and dies by the group you play it with. I remember trying to play the Red Faction playset, which was a fucking disaster. But again, just by the name of the group, this, the subject matter I loved, but it was definitely mm. not the right group to play that with. Yeah. But the session I remember enjoying the most was actually one that I played at Gen Con as part of a Games on Demand pickup. I think it was maybe the last year I went to Gen Con. It was uh, Scott Jenks, a friend of mine out there, suggested to go along and play it with, I think it was his sister, and uh, I think there was a couple of other players there as well. I think it was one of the published scenarios, or what do they call them, like uh, sets, or I can't remember the term they use. Playsets, I think. Playsets, that's it. That it was around a best friend's wedding type of thing. And boy, <laughs> I had a whale of a time with that. It was really a lot of fun. But yeah, it completely lives and dies by the group you play it with. But I'm interested that you mentioned Polaris because looking back, I mean, we played this best part of 20 years ago, Polaris. Mm. I don't remember it being a GMless game. I remember enjoying it. Yeah. And I remember some of the atmosphere and some of the other mechanics, but <laughs> funnily enough, I don't remember it as being GMless. So it's really made me want to go back and have another look at it. Well, I think one of the things that helps it in that respect is that out of all the GMless games that I've played, it's probably the most structured. Right. It's got this sort of ritual aspect to it in terms of you start the game by lighting a candle and intoning certain phrases. Yeah, I remember that. You've got certain stock phrases for starting and stopping each scene and for wrapping up the game at the end. But... If I remember correctly, each you play with four people and each person has got control of a certain aspect oh. of the game. So rather than it being very freeform like Fiasco, yeah. it's more like a devolved GM situation. Right, yes, that sounds more like it. Yeah, that sounds more yeah. like what I remember. And I remember Archipelago being a bit like that as well. It's, it's a long time since so I played mm. that, but yeah, I think each person takes on a different aspect of the, the normal GM role. Yeah, I did play that one time at IndyCon, I think. For me, I think I like having a, I like having someone in charge. I like having a GM. I know that's kind of a... It's very trad, not indie. Yeah, there's this kind of um, accepted wisdom that we're all equal at the table. Well, yeah, that's fine. We're all equal at the table, but some are more equal than others. <laughs> I think the GM is usually nominally kind of in charge and has a, a greater role in most role-playing games. There's that aspect to it that, that sort of provides a structure. 
and perhaps helps with some of the issues that you talked about with um, the fiasco. But more than that, I think I like having the feeling that there's something to explore. There's something concrete there that we're sort of participating in. Having no GM feels a bit like when you're watching a cowboy film and those sets, the front of the saloon and all those buildings, there's nothing behind them. They're just like cardboard cutouts being propped up by bits of wood behind. I don't want to see around the back. I mean, it worked well in Blazing Saddles. That's great because that breaks the fourth wall and they end up in Hollywood at the end and it's all you know fantastic. But I like that illusion that, that there's stuff to immerse myself in that's, that's kind of, uh, even if the GM is, has only just made it up on the spot, mm. I don't really want to see behind that curtain. I like that immersion in that fiction in that way. But that's the point, isn't it? That that is an illusion. It's something that you're yeah, buying yeah. into. But so is every film we watch. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know. I mean, for me, with GMless games and improvisational games and a lot of the collaborative stuff that came out of the indie explosion from 20 years ago, I like that devolved aspect of it. I like the more participatory aspect of it. And it's weird. It doesn't necessarily break that feeling of it being, <laughs> if this isn't too much of an oxymoron, real fiction. Mm. It's still something that I can buy into, but the fact that I'm perhaps more able to control and shape it and direct it actually helps with my buy-in rather than undermining it. How about you, Matt? They're not my go-to games, no. Very much like Paul, I like there to be a, a structure behind everything. There's almost a, a defined world to play in. And where it's left up to everyone, as said before, it lives and dies by the group you're playing with. Whereas you have less of that problem if you've got a GM in the group, in my experience. Hmm. I mean, most role-playing games have a, a GM, and I guess that's for a reason. There are some GMless games, but they're in the minority. And yeah, I mean, I guess there's a, like we said, there's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. Not to say that some don't work well. I think, you know, I'd like, like I said, I'd like to go back to Polaris, but that, from what you said, Scott, that sounds like a little bit of a halfway house in, the, in it's got that kind of shared responsibility sort of going around for, for different aspects of the game, almost like taking turns to be GM a little bit. There's certainly an element of that. Having a GM, that's a structure. A GM and, you know, three or four players or whatever, that's a standard role-playing game structure that has stood the test of time. Once you sort of break out of that, you're into a different realm and some people have created something that works quite well with that or works very well with that but i think there's you've sort of taken away the goalposts and you've sort of said it could be anything so lots of people do different things with that and some work and some don't i guess i think what's important there is the attitude that the players come to the table with and this was something that i encountered an awful lot during this indie games revolution of the early 2000s that there were a bunch of people who were used to more traditional games who really took against a lot of the ideas there because of exactly what you said it was sort of oh yeah well if it can be anything then it's it's nothing or you know what's stopping me from doing this and fundamentally is the attitude you come to the table with i mean if you want you can ruin any game for anyone you you can absolutely do that and you can do that during a traditional game as well just by having your character be a dick and you can do that in an indie game as well just by or in a gm list game 
by not collaborating with the other people at the table, by not trying to get on the same page as them, by not trying to create something shared between you if you go off in your own direction or if you actively try to undermine the fiction that people are creating, then yeah, it's going to be a disaster. Mm. I don't see that as being any different in a traditional game. Fundamentally, it's a social contract. You're sitting down with a group of people at the table and you're agreeing to abide by certain hard and soft rules. And if you don't do that, then, yeah, it ain't going to work. Shall we move on to the next topic? Elixir was asking about epistolary play as well. With letters. Is that something any of us have ever done? I've tried to do play-by-mail online and absolutely fucking hated it, so no. Well, play-by-mail is a little different to what mm. he's talking about there, I think. So play-by-mail is like, I've played a variant of diplomacy play-by-mail, and people send in their moves and, you know, correspond with each other. But what we're talking about here, I is the way I understand it, is the actual play is through writing letters to each other. And this, yeah. to me, is kind of typified by um, a game that came out over 20 years ago now, De Profundis, yeah. by Michael Orax. So that's a, it's a kind of a, a Cthulhu game, a Lovecraftian game, where you're writing letters to each other. There's very little mechanics or anything. Mm. If anybody's interested, there is a second edition I, I looked up available through DriveThru right now. Yes, if I remember correctly, a Polish game originally, isn't it, that was translated into English? Yeah, I believe so. I did kind of start playing it with somebody, but it didn't go very far. Yeah, it's one of these things where I like the idea of it, but mm. frankly, I can't be asked. Same. <laughs> Pretty bluntly, yeah, this is not the kind of game style for me. For me, when I play a role-playing game, it's a social activity. I do it because I enjoy talking to people. And the idea of a, an epistolary game sort of takes that immediacy out of the whole thing. I, it stops feeling conversational. And I don't know, for me, it starts getting boring. There's also the fact it would probably send me to sleep trying to read the letters from other players. So. <laughs> yeah, but there's no rush, Matt. You can wake up and read them when you wake up. They won't know. It's kind of like what Scott said there. It there's no immediacy. There's, it's more of a chore to yeah. sit down and read the fucking letter that comes in. Uh, <laughs> no, I just... I, I'm, no, 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 no. Uh, yes. Reading letters from people, that's a chore. <laughs> There's a variant of this as well that's really caught on in recent years, which is something that's passed me by almost completely, which is journaling RPGs. Thousand Year Vampire mm. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. They're basically single-player RPGs where you're given a, a whole series of constraints or prompts or whatever, and you effectively write a diary or fiction or whatever, and that is your role-playing also, no. <laughs> I mean, I guess as a creative writing prompt, it's interesting. Now I can, again, see the appeal of it in certain ways, but it's not personally what I want out of a role-playing game. That sounds like I'm going to put all the effort in that I would put into writing a published scenario and not get anything out at the end of it. No, I can use my time <laughs> a hell of a lot better and more efficiently to actually get something more fun, and that will help fund my gaming habit. 
Have you visited our Red Bubble store? We have t-shirts, stickers and all sorts of goodies that you or someone you know might like. Check it out. Just click on the merchandise link on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. The next question Alexo asked was uh, how to go about building an RPG group. First of all, obviously, you go down to the cemetery and start digging up body parts. <laughs> oh, that's a different approach. I'd got like write a letter to Arcane Magazine. <laughs> that's what you do, right? Or go on, you know, there is a, a Usenet group for role playing, I think. <laughs> You can apply for players on that. I was thinking back, you know, when I came back to Buckingham in, in I think, about 94, I didn't know anybody around here that was a role player, and the internet was quite, you know, well, I didn't have the internet at all at the time, and mm. so it was kind of like, well, how do I get to know anybody? And that is what I did. I wrote a letter to, there was a, a role-playing game magazine at the time that was coming out in nudes agents. It got pretty wide distribution, and I put a letter in there, and I think that's how I got in touch with uh, Matt Knott. Um, in Milton mm. Keynes, and we formed a group. But besides, obviously now, you know, it's not an issue. There's loads of communities and, and, and people online that you can get in touch with, and you don't need to um, be in the same town anymore and, and all that. But I think the difference back then, it, I was sort of thinking about this, and the difference back then was that you got in touch with some role players just because they played role-playing games, not because they played Call of Cthulhu or, or World of Darkness or whatever, just because they were into role-playing games. Mm. Then you sat down and said, oh, and, and what are we going to play? But now I think, you know, you get people who want to play that specific game or you, know, or you can group your people together much easier because there's a much bigger pool of people. But but back then I think the, that was kind of different. So you'd say, you know, well, who's going to run? And, I mean, these are the issues you face any point i suppose like well who's going to run the game what game are we going to play beyond all the other parts of the uh things you might go through in nowadays with session zero and whatever i don't think that's necessarily changed completely i do all my gaming online these days and there are certain games which I joined just because you know, someone's posted it on, for example, our Discord server and I've joined in or because I've posted it on there and I'm running it. But there are other ones where there are groups of us who have come together because we've played a few games together and we've enjoyed the games we've had, so we've decided to try other things. And it is very much rotating GMs and someone sort of saying, oh, actually, you know, I've just picked this up. Shall we? give this a try it still works in very much the same way hmm. so yeah i don't think technology or or anything has has necessarily changed that but like you said i think the difference is now that you've got a potentially larger pool of people oh, yeah. to draw from so if there's some game that the rest of your group don't want to play you know back in the day if the rest of your group didn't want to play whatever game you weren't going to get to play it because nobody wanted to play it whereas now you can there's there's a bigger pool of people to reach out to perhaps is that would you say that's the case yeah i mean certainly that's my personal experience and what about you matt how how have you gone about finding groups because you, you you run quite a lot of games you know you run for into the darkness and so on mm -hmm. i guess they're an established group that you joined yeah, it's normally that I've been quite lucky where I've been invited or been able to find a group and either kind of put my head through the door and say, oh, you got space for one more, that I've not had to go and actively put together a group in a long, long time. That mm. is just 
people from existing other groups that I've been able to get involved with that maybe I've pulled out and say, hey, how about you, you and you from different groups? Would you want to form together to do something separate from everything else? But it's always been with an established bunch of players that I've been lucky enough to already been connected with. Did you ever have to sort of get a group together back in the day when you were sort of starting off or were you already, you know, I know you were involved in a community pretty quickly. No, it's pretty much always been that I got invited to stuff and it's that's how I've been able to pull players together. You're just a popular guy. Apparently <laughs> so. It, it still astounds me. But yeah. It's an interesting question, or, or rather interesting that Elixo asked this question, how to build an RPG group now, because yeah. it's some, certainly something that I would have looked to address 20 years ago. But now I'm kind of curious that it's still a question. Okay, so if there are people listening that, perhaps that have got the podcast and they're not part of a role-playing game online community, what advice would we offer them? Where should they go? I mean, our Discord server, if they're into yeah. Cthulhu, you're listening to this podcast, so <laughs> probably uh, that might be something of interest. Other obvious answers are conventions, but also, I guess, game shops. Hmm. I think this is more an American thing that local gaming stores tend to have, or you know, quite often have public play areas and organise games there. That may be an option. One thing that I've had very mixed success with, and I don't know about you two, is recruiting people who aren't already gamers. Mm. Oh yeah, I've got this gaming group together. Have you ever wanted to try an RPG? Do you want to join us and see how you like it? And the few times I've tried, yeah, it's it's never really worked that well. No, I, I remember doing that at university, inquiring to see if I could get an unknown armies game set up there, and approached a couple of people that I knew through my course, and it completely failed. There was just not enough interest. People that were there evidently were not gamers. I guess sounding people out and if they're like excited about it and enthused, okay. But if they're sort of saying, oh, all right, yeah, okay, yeah. we'll come along. It's like you've got to gauge the level of uh, interest because it's not just like going along to a movie or something like that. There's a lot more investment when you come to play a role-playing game, isn't there? So if somebody's not really excited about that, they could latch onto it and be really excited by it or it could be uh, they're expecting a board game and... It's something totally different. But I guess mm. nowadays we've got a lot of um, online play through things like Critical Role and so on. And we've seen people turning up at the Milton Keynes Club who never played a role-playing game before, never had any experience of them, except through watching them online, which is yeah, definitely over the last few years brought a lot of people into the hobby. Yeah, and I think that's a really good thing as well because it sets expectations, maybe the wrong expectations at times because mm. with actual plays, you tend to approach them differently than you would a normal game. I say this as someone who runs a lot of actual plays that there's an element of performance there that you wouldn't necessarily get at your, your home game. And I think particularly when you get to things like Critical Role, those are professional actors and mm. there's a lot of scripted stuff there and it's going to be very different than anyone's actual gaming experiences. But on the other hand, I think it means that 
people have got a much better idea of what an RPG is before they turn up than your example there, Paul, of someone who's turned up and they're expecting to play a board game and it's sort of, oh, okay, well, what do I do now? Yeah, exactly, because it's quite hard to communicate to somebody who mm. has no concept of role-playing games what it is. Mm. You can phrase it in a number of ways, but until you've done it or witnessed it, it's uh, perhaps something not easy to get your head around. Something that is perhaps going off topic here, but I feel like is part of building a role-playing games group, and this this opens a whole can of worms, so maybe we don't <laughs> want to dive into this too deeply, but anecdotally, and I wasn't, I'm going to say I wasn't part of this group, and when I say a friend, I'm not talking about me, but a friend of mine has recounted to me how they moved the venue of their game and didn't tell one of the other players just because they couldn't face talking to the person and uh, just wanted to like get rid of this person which is just it, it it's not funny but i mean it's it's kind of yeah the absurdity of it makes me laugh but it's really quite unpleasant but just sort of take a step back from that is how do you build your group how do you manage it yeah i mean how do you sort of that, that's a whole nother level of things how do you address people that you you know you if you don't gel with someone socially, but they're keen to be part of your group, but you and the other players just don't get on with them, because it is a, so as you said, Scott, it is a social activity. Yeah. Uh, that can be difficult. RPGs are almost unique in that respect, in that I think, of course, if you've got a board game group or something like that, there's definitely a social aspect to it. But I think the very nature of RPGs, the fact that they are entirely conversation and that they involve perhaps sometimes even exposing parts of your your psyche, parts of your personality to people that you wouldn't even bring up in conversation. Yeah. Then there's something very intimate about them that you don't get from necessarily any other kind of gaming and so, yeah, they do become this very social activity. And so rejection from a game group then becomes a very deep kind of social rejection. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's harsh. And I mean, yes, you should talk to people about it, but, you know, that's a however much we sort of say, oh, yeah, you should do this, this, and this. It's never easy. I mean, that that's no. really hard. And to be honest, I'm not really sure I know how to do it either. It's, uh, yeah, it's tough. Well, I remember at the club years back that there was a game I was offering and there was a guy who'd signed up for it who I'd played in a couple of games with who was very, very socially awkward. I mean, I have nothing against socially awkward people. I'm quite socially awkward myself. But it was going to be a problem in this game because I think I was running Sorcerer and he was just going to be a bad fit for the group. And... It was about the only time at the club I'd, I'd had to take someone aside and sort of say, look, yeah, I, I don't want you in my game for this. I don't think it's going to work out. Yeah, I don't think you're going to enjoy it. I think it's going to ruin it for everyone else. But trying to find ways of putting that that aren't going to hurt someone's feelings. I mean, particularly in, in a club setting or in, a, say, if you're playing online, you're going to get people wanting to game with you who you don't necessarily want to game with yourself. Mm. And dealing with that is, yeah, as you say, it's, I mean, it's way more difficult than we anticipate. 
It is. And it's not something you anticipate happening, I think, until it happens. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've had to deal with this as well, Matt, but you, you seem very accepting. I mean, we're all, hopefully we're all quite accepting <laughs> of people, but, but to me, you seem more accepting of, of people. I don't know. Yeah, it takes a lot to push my buttons. And I've, I've been quietly sitting here thinking of an experience that I had not too long ago, actually where I ended up with a particular player in my game who was very enthusiastic, enjoyed everything, but made it an absolute fucking chore for me as the GM to get any kind of enjoyment out of that uh, experience mm. whatsoever and left me feeling I never want this person in any game that I've ever going to offer ever again because I just I'll see that person and I'll just go, no, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. Well, how did you deal with that? I pretty much left the server and didn't offer any games in that group because I didn't want the chance of that person turning up in my game again. Yeah. It's weird how that becomes like the only viable option. I've been there myself. I really don't know how to handle it on a personal level. But yeah, I mean, there definitely are people I don't want to game with. And telling them that just feels rude. But on the other hand... Perhaps because all three of us have spent a lot of time running games at conventions, there is this expectation that you're almost providing a service to people there, that you are there accepting all comers. You're not really in a position to reject people. And as a result, you become dissociated from that idea that you as a GM are there to have fun as well. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to remember. And if there is someone who is ruining games for you as a GM, and also as another player, I think it is fair, if very, very difficult, to say to them, look, yeah, I'm sorry, for whatever reason, this isn't going to work. Mm. But yeah, I agree. On, on a personal level, I find that absolutely skin-crawling. Mm. So then we come on to the last of Elixo's uh, suggestions, which have been pretty good so far. So yeah. we get to how to learn rules stroke read a core rule book. I guess what we're talking about, what order to read the chapters in, or, you know, do you turn to the scenario first? Do you look at how to create a character first? Do you look at the background first? Do you look at the GM advice? Do you just flick through it for your highlights? Where do you kind of begin? Do you do you have a particular thing that you do when you pick up a game and you want to familiarise yourself with it? Because mm -hmm. I know some people, I think listening to the Smart Party, I think I might be misremembering. I think Baz has talked about how he'll like roll up a character or something like that. Now, I know my default reaction, and it's worked for me with, with quite a few games now. Mm. I find someone who learns to, to digest this information the complete opposite <laughs> to myself. Oh, okay. I.e., they will sit down and read the book, because if I have a book and just read it, it's not going to sink in. I yeah. learn to play a game through playing it. So I have to I have to find someone who is able to read and digest that information and then regurgitate it back to me in the form of the game itself, in form of playing it. And once I play it, I pick it up, I go, hey, now I know what I'm doing, and then I'll read the book because I have a frame of reference, and then it can finally sink in. So I have to play it before I can learn it. Hmm. As a sort of middle ground, how do you find listening to actual plays? 
if you hear someone else playing it, can you absorb it the same way or do you have to play it yourself? It depends on how they play it, because if you have an actual play which is at the highly scripted end, where there is virtually no mm-hmm. mechanics, no discussion involved, mm-hmm. that's the worst experience for me possible. And even outside of learning a game, that's the type of game I do not want to hear or see or waste my time listening to. If it's something that actually feels like a recording of a group that are sat around a table playing a game and the players have questions like, oh, how does this work again? And the GM will take the time to explain it. That is gold for me. That is the way that A, it actually feels like a proper game session and not an audio drama, but it also is an experience where I can learn through it because I, as a player, will probably have those questions that the player in the game is asking. Yeah, they're much more nuts and bolts, yeah. Yeah, I actually feel it's more of a game session I can draw stuff from rather than just the story, but actually how the game works as well. Hmm. What's even worse, I think, is when they get the rules wrong. <laughs> I've encountered this a few times where there are groups, actual play groups, where they will, I guess, you know, it's like any RPG group where they've, perhaps inadvertently house ruled things or someone's misinterpreted a rule mm. and it's, it's sort of stuck that way ever since. But if you're using that as a method for learning the rules and then butt up against something different in the, the rule book or the first time you try to apply that when you're running it yourself, everyone else at the table just sits there and goes, what the fuck? What are you doing? No, nope, mm-hmm. no, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> then it's perhaps not that helpful. I don't know. I think if you've played it with a group and they do it a certain way that isn't as written in the book, when you come to read the book, you're going to realise, oh, actually, we did it that way. But now I'm reading it, I can see actually they weren't doing it like it's it's intended. So I think that can still serve a purpose, even if you, you know, watching something that is in inverted commas wrong, when you come to read the right version of it can sort of help to illustrate that, I think, or help to highlight the, the differences. Mm. What about when you come to read it then, Matt? So you've played it or you've watched or you've listened or watched or whatever. Do you then sit down and read the book cover to cover or do you just sort of uh, cherry pick bits of it? Pretty much cover to cover. Right. The most recent examples from a personal experience, like reading the Vason book, I pretty much digested that cover to cover with the exception of the adventure at the back because I'd already played it. So I I didn't really feel the need to go out and run that particular scenario. I played it, it was okay, but it didn't grab me like the same way that other adventures have where it's, I think, my God, this is so cool. I've got to go out and run this for some other group now. That didn't hit me with that one. But otherwise, every other bit of that book, I digested cover to cover. Right. Likewise, I'm now starting to do with that with the Blade Runner RPG. Now I've played the starter set adventure. I want to go through the core book and read and get everything in there and crammed in my head as best I can. Hmm. Do you think that's very much a a GM's attitude and that a lot of players don't bother reading the rule books? I'd probably say there's a degree of that, yeah. That there's definitely players that will, from my experience of other games, again, that players will learn what they need to do for their character. So they'll Mm. learn, oh, I I need to know what these feats or these merits or these disciplines or these spells, etc., whatever splat you want to put on it. I know how my bits work, but I don't need to know every bit of the rules. But then I know mm. other players that will take all those rules and find, right, now I know how this game works. How can I min-max and play this to its <laughs> best advantage and really could they do the the soul-destroying number-crunching of uh, the uh, <laughs> role-playing rather than uh, rolling the dice for the two L's rather than R-O-L-E? I can't say that there are too many games where I haven't been a GM where I've bothered reading the rule book. 
It just doesn't interest me that much. If I can absorb the rules through playing, then that's fine. I don't need to know them in more detail than that. When I've been GMing games, or going back to the idea of GMless games when I've facilitated them, back in that early indie games explosion, I found in a lot of cases I was the person who picked up these games and then would bring them to the table and sort of explain them to other people, either GMing them or, you know, explaining how to play a, a GM this game. And so as a result, I spent an awful lot of that time learning new game systems. And the way that I did it at the time was I'd sit down with the rule book and I'd basically write my own cheat sheet. I'd condense the rules mm. as much as I could and just break it down to bullet points sort of say, you know, right, here's a little flowchart, here's a list of things to do, whatever. And as long as I could condense it, put it in that form that I understood, then I felt like I'd grasped the game enough to play or run it. I've just had a flash of memory of another, you, you mentioned GMless games there again, Scott, and uh, I just remember Dog Eat Dog was another GMless game that I played that I wrote about in the Tome oh, many issues ago. Oh God, yes. It was facilitated by somebody, Epistolary Richard oh, yeah, facilitated yeah. it, but I think it was a GMless game, as I recall. So have we got any more to say about how we learn rules and read a, a core book? I've got one thing, uh, one plan for uh, where I can't necessarily play it, but I'm having to rely on other people. Mm -hmm. Admittedly, it's only for a narrow stretch, because I think he's only done this for three games, or is doing this for his third one currently. Getting someone like Seth Skorkowski to do his breakdown of the core book and to explain things mm. through videos is also very helpful. He's done it with Call of Cthulhu. He's done it with Traveller, which is the one I'm planning on picking up next. And he's currently doing it with Cult. So they proved uh, remarkably helpful. Right, so video guides. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One thing I'd add is that if you're writing an RPG at any stage, I would wholeheartedly advocate putting in as many rule summaries as you can, break them down to, as I mentioned before, down to bullet points or flowcharts or whatever. Simplify things as much as you can to explain them. But also, above all else, put in examples of play. Because yeah. for a great many of us, as Matt and I have both said, we both learn best by playing the game. But if you can put examples of play into your, your rule book and show how the rules work in action, then it goes from being an abstract to, oh, yeah, oh, right. So, so that's how it would happen at the table. I understand that. Mm -hmm. For me personally, it makes all the difference to how well I can learn something. The next suggestion came in from someone different, from... Relay scary. With the new version of Dreams in the Witch House, funnily enough, which uh, Paul discussed in his recent TV media episode, maybe an episode on witches then and now, and how to use them in modern scenarios while being respectful. Just trying to pin down what you mean by witches for a start, because that's become yeah, a very different term over the years with the rise of neo-paganism and so on. The idea of what witchcraft is and how it relates to Wicca, you know, is perhaps very different from perceptions of witchcraft in fiction, in folklore. Yeah, it's complicated. It's really fucking complicated. Yeah, and I mean, there are sort of witchcraft traditions from cultures all over the world. So mm. uh, it's a very broad subject. But I guess we could certainly look at how 
the then, the Lovecraft bit, because that's quite well defined. We've got Lovecraft stories that feature witches. Uh, we've got the kind of um, text that he was drawing on Murray, isn't it? Somebody Murray, Margaret Murray? Uh, the witch cult in Western Europe, yeah. Yeah, I know it was largely sort of debunked, but um, oh, yeah. still be something that you know, we could look at because that shaped, I think, in part Lovecraft's understanding of uh, what witches were. And how to use them in modern scenarios. Like we said, if we look at witchcraft now, we've got a whole world of it and extremely diverse how you'd use it. There's not going to be a, a single answer. There's going to be lots of different answers to that. Fundamentally, you have to think an awful lot about context. You have to think a lot about the setting. You have to... So, you know, if you were doing a scenario about witches that was set in, say, 17th century Europe... That would be very different than, say, something set in the present day. Mm. And I think, yeah, being mindful of that, that setting, I mean, it's, I think it, it'd be quite jarring if you went back to, say, that 17th century setting and then tried to put everything in terms of, uh, say, Wicca, because Wicca didn't exist until the 1940s. The only thing that keeps going around my head is having watched the latest Hocus Pocus film and seeing the, the evolution between witches used to ride brooms and then in the first film, nope, one doesn't have a broom so has to make do with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Update that to the most recent Hocus Pocus. Vacuum cleaner's a bit old now so I'm going to ride around on a couple of rumbas. So yeah, there's, there's certain elements where I can see that it can transition in quite... It's very much a definitely comedic way. But mm. again, it's a very touchy subject because some people take this very seriously, but my default might be to take something a bit more tongue-in-cheek with it, to be honest. But as very much making it clear from the outset, this is not meant to be some kind of piss take. This is meant just to be a fun a fun time. Mm. But what makes it complicated is, I think as Paul touched upon, even within modern-day witchcraft, Getting two people who maybe even identify as witches to agree on what witchcraft is, is damn near impossible. <laughs> I've known over the years a lot of Wiccans, a lot of neo-pagans of various kinds. I also have a friend who is a witch and talks about it very much in very old-fashioned satanic terms. And if you ask Wiccans about that, they sort of say, oh, yeah, there's nothing, all that stuff about the satanic aspects of it and all these old stories and so on. They're absolute bullshit. They're slander, etc. But if you talk to this other witch about it, it's sort of, well, hang on, no, no, this is our tradition. This is where it all comes from. And being sensitive to both of those points of view in a scenario or a game would be absolutely impossible because they are absolutely opposed. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of a line from the meta text in Unknown Armies, where it describes about when you get a group of uh, players in a car journey going across country, you get two avatars, they'll quite happily sit in the car and they'll get on fairly well. You get two adepts in the car and they'll be at each other's throats by the time you get to the city limits because they can't agree on exactly how their schools are the same thing. Are you looking for a D&D podcast for the dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old school D&D. 
Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. So P. Troilus suggests Cthulhu Mythos fumbles and spontaneous use of Cthulhu Mythos, the two of which very much tied together around the use of the Cthulhu Mythos skill in Call of Cthulhu. We did do an episode on that back in episode 13. That doesn't mean that we can't revisit it at some stage and flesh it out, but we did talk about the Cthulhu Mythos skill and the spontaneous use of it back then. Did you say in episode 13? 13, one, three, yeah. Bloody hell. Being such an early episode, I don't know how solid it's going to be, but you never know. We might have got it right. It was solid as the stool we had in between us that was covered in mould with the microphone on top of it. It was really solid. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I'm sure we talked just as much nonsense then as we do now, so I, I doubt if there's, you know, it'd be just fine. Go back and listen to episode 13. I have no memory of what we said, but I'm sure it was all fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Cthulhu Mythos fumbles in particular. I, I think those are potentially great fun. I'm sure I've said this before. Probably in episode 13. <laughs> but in any game where I get a chance to do spontaneous uses of the Cthulhu Mythos, I will always push the role. It doesn't matter if I've got 1% Cthulhu Mythos, I will push the role. Because... On that failed push, something interesting is going to happen. I recently had a long-lived character on Natural Play be absolutely destroyed by this, and it was very, very entertaining. I knew the odds were against me. I knew that I was probably going to self-destruct, but yeah, it was a climactic moment in the campaign, and I figured I'd push that role, see what's going to happen. And sure enough, it went horribly, horribly wrong. And I loved it. Yeah, if you succeed, then it's great because you achieve some bit of magical effect. Perhaps perhaps magical is the wrong term, but some mythos effect. And if you fail, then the keeper gets to hit you with some other kind of mythos effect. So it's a win-win, really. I really like the Mythos Deities episodes, in particular if you want to do all the ones you haven't already in Two-Edged Serpent and have any inspiration for various things their devotees might say. So we've already covered Sarthogua, but we haven't gone into Yig or Gatanathoa. They're on the list. That's the short version, yes. We're planning on doing those quite soon. Actually, that thing about have any inspiration for various things their devotees might say... That's something we haven't necessarily gone into too much in the Mythos Deities episodes, is it? What their cultists might be like. We've gone into the gods themselves, but we haven't necessarily talked too much about their cults. And we probably should. Yeah, that would be a good aspect to focus a bit more on. I mean, in Malleus Monstrorum, it gives a, a section on cults for each deity, Sometimes it's like there are no human cults or no known human cults associated with this deity or whatever. But yeah, that's one of the aspects that we could certainly focus on because that human level thing is always useful in games. And then we have a suggestion of horrors set in the future, like Call of Cthulhu, Cyberpunk, Alien. Yeah, we're living through it. (laughs) (laughs) This is something that I don't necessarily do very much. 
don't know about you two. I mean, I love science fiction. I love horror. I don't tend to cross the streams very much. I mean, I've played Alien. While I enjoyed it fine as a one-shot, it's not a game I particularly feel moved to go back to because I think it's it's a very focused setting and a very mm. focused style of play. I've done it once. That's fine. I don't feel the need to revisit that. We started playing the Destroyer of Worlds scenario, which is one that follows on from Chariot of the Gods that you played. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which is very much focused on the Colonial Marines, and it's very much more a Aliens-style game rather than Alien. But I've been having a blast with it. I think it's great fun. Oh, cool. That's the aspect of it that appealed to me the least. Well, as I've said before, I don't like Aliens as a film very much. It wasn't what I wanted. I mean, I, I love Alien. I liked Alien 3. Aliens leaves me cold because of the militaristic aspect of it. I don't really want to play that as an RPG. I felt kind of the same. I'm not much of one for gung-ho action. But hell, I think it captured the feel of the film and I thought it was fantastic. But if you don't like Aliens, you probably won't. So I wouldn't recommend it to you. But I'll keep on playing it because I want to play that whole story arc all the way through because I really, really, really liked it. So futuristic horror... Yeah, I guess with horror, we tend to play it in the modern day or with Call of Cthulhu, you know, there's that default setting of the 1920s, but you can set it in any period. That's one of the, mm. the good things about it. And we see that with lots of supplements from Roman Cthulhu Invictus and so on, all the way up to modern day and beyond. I'll give my scenario a plug. My little sister wants you to suffer. That's out on drive through right now. And that's a, a futuristic Call of Cthulhu game. So... I don't know if that much has to change for you to make it futuristic. Well, it's the setting, isn't it? Like we sort of said with witches, that can mean a lot of different things. Well, once you say futuristic, I mean, that can mean like anything. And also sci-fi has that thing of being so many different things that you need to get on the same page with your other players uh, you know you need to do work to get on the same page because what are we talking you know when we say sci-fi or mm. not even necessarily sci-fi but futuristic i guess you can do it in fairly broad strokes i mean you could say something like okay this is going to be set on board a colony ship mm. and immediately people have got expectations of what that might be like or this is set on board a space station or something like that and immediately you've got all sorts of frames of reference but then yes you're right you've got to discuss what kind of technology levels whether there are aliens involved that kind of thing but as long as you can pin those down you can probably skip over a lot of details like you said if you use those touchstones then you can pretty quickly get on the same page mm -hmm. with other people it's mad max you know yeah yeah futuristic things do lend themselves to dystopia as well so which you know generally ties in with horror Horror in cities stroke urban settings. I mean, that just seems a very broad suggestion. I'm not quite sure what we're getting at there. I mean, it's cities versus rural. I mean... Well, I think there are a few specific considerations there. I mean, one is that 
when we've talked before about how horror is very rooted in the sense of isolation. Mm. So if you're going to try to replicate that within an urban environment, or at least address that, then you're looking at different kinds of isolation. You're looking at social isolation. You're looking at perhaps being in a foreign city and not speaking the language. When I think of urban horror, I think of horror stories that draw very specifically upon the city environment. Say some of Fritz Lieber's stuff, like uh, Our Lady of Darkness or Smoke Ghost, or any number of stories that he wrote, which draw very specifically upon the urban environment, upon the kind of ghosts and horrors and so on that that live within the cracks of the city, that you wouldn't necessarily see in a rural environment. Yeah, I think there's some rich veins to be mined there. Hmm. So thank you to everybody who contributed suggestions for this episode and for you know what we might talk about in future episodes. As we said, please do keep them coming. We've got lots more to talk about. And if this episode was of interest, let us know. And I think we'll certainly have some future episodes to continue talking down our list. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this episode. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new backers to thank personally by name. Starting off with a thanks to Dan Tice. And a lovely one here. I like this one. Thank you very much to the singular quackers, because I love a good duck. <laughs> and thank you very much to Bogdan. And thanks to Logan Hamilton. And thank you very much to James Williams. And thank you to Kit Ainsley. And thanks to Craig Coventry. And thank you very much to Geoffrey Ewing. And thank you to Mark Waterhouse. And thank you to Adrian M. Hey, one I know here. Hey, thank you very much to Orin Mayer. Hey, Orin. And speaking of people you know, uh, thank you very much to Into the Darkness. Indeed, yeah. I assume that must be Tom. It is, yes. And thank you to Crinken. And thank you much to, hopefully I'm getting this right, Neuromancer. And thank you finally to Nicholas Lorelei. And if you are enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you told people whether this means leaving a review somewhere where podcast reviews can be found or mentioning it on social media to like-minded people who would be only too happy to hear the good word of Jackson. Okay, well, that wraps up another episode. You've been listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.